There we go. Good morning. I, uh, well, before I say that, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, we'll be in Acts chapter 4. We're going to start reading in verse 32, and we'll go through chapter 5, verse 11 today. So Acts chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 32 in just a few minutes. If you don't know me, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, you have one, wor- one more week to bear with me behind the pulpit, and then uh, next week, Pastor Stephen will be back. So he is uh, celebrating Lovisville Baptist Church's first year anniversary. I heard that over there. It's okay. Uh, he's celebrating Lovisville Baptist Church's one year anniversary this week with them. And so uh, we praise God for Pastor Cody. We praise God for Lovisville Baptist Church. And so we are thankful to share Stephen with them today. Um, also, uh, even as Ben uh, already prayed today, September 11th, to those whom it has most impacted, I know you have not forgotten. And so uh, we want you to know as a church, we still think about you, pray for you, for it has affected many of you personally in some very deep and profound ways, whether that's the loss of friends or loved ones, or even um, in your own workplace. Um, and so I want to pray for you in just a minute and pray that God would uh, be a balm to your soul and that also he would give us all ears to hear his word this morning. So let's go to him now. Father, we thank you for this day, for you are the giver of life and breath. We want to praise your name today. And as we do, we also have brothers and sisters sitting among us that are hurting deeply. We ask that you would comfort them today. Even as we know your word says that you are the God of all comfort. And so we ask you, the God of all comfort, to be with us today. Especially present help for those who are hurting We also ask that you would give us ears to hear your word today. From Acts chapter 4, that it would be a delight to us, a challenge to us, that it would spur us on towards Christ-likeness. And I pray that whatever you would not once said, that it would not come from my lips. Give us ears to hear, Father. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, there are a number of hot topics in our culture that people avoid talking about, right? You you avoid them maybe in all of life, but especially the workplace and in the neighborhood, perhaps. The two hottest button topics I could think of would be religion and politics, right? You're probably shy away from those. People hold both beliefs on both of those subjects very dear to their heart. It can get heated rather quickly. And yet also in the church, I think there may be topics that we avoid, not necessarily because they're hot button topics, but maybe because they're very personal. It feels like if we were to talk about them in front of others, it would be invading someone's privacy. Maybe it would be challenging to either us or them too much. 
John Piper in his book, Living, the, Living in the Light, and Tim Keller, his book, Counterfeit Gods, they write on all three of these topics, helping us think well about them. In Piper's book, he says, Money, sex, and power are from the beginning gifts of God, good gifts of God, and if they sink us, it's because God gave us It isn't because God gave us bad gifts. It's because something happened inside of us to turn gifts of grace into instruments of sin, into altars and incense and the temple of pride. I think these are three, if you want to say, hot button issues that we as Christians maybe don't talk about enough. It might feel like we're prying into somebody's business or someone may be prying into our business when we talk about these things in the church. It's not comfortable. And yet sometimes we may sit content because we don't want to talk about it. We may sit content turning these good gifts into idols. Or at least we're allowing them to be idols in our lives at times. So we're not going to look at all three of these topics. That'd be a bit much. You wouldn't want to be here that long. But we will consider money. Or maybe even more accurately, we'll consider our attitude toward money. That is, that God's people should be a generous people. Read now with me as I read Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and and laid it at the apostles' feet." And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, Whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to testify the Spirit, to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, 
and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in there, came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard these things. This is the word of God. Well, today as we consider this passage, we're going to see three points from this passage, or maybe you want to think of them as three scenes. And so first, we're going to see a radically generous church. Then we'll see a positive example. And finally, a negative or a bad example. So let's now look to this generous church in verses 32 through 35. This is very similar. This summary that we see in these verses is very similar to what we saw in Acts chapter 2. If you were here with us then, it's a summary of the early church and what's going on. And verse 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. We saw earlier in chapter 4 last week that this full number would, was at least counted to be 5,000 because it says 5,000 men. So if we include any children and women as well, then it would maybe be even 10,000 people in the church at that time. And it says, all who believed were of one heart and one soul. That to me is amazing. Right, that 10,000 people are of one heart and one soul. It's, it's I think, the, the beginning of Jesus's, the fulfillment of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, where he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you loved me. So the oneness of the church at this time, the one heart, the one soul, is starting to be fulfilled from Jesus' prayer. And it's a reflection of our triune God. Doesn't, isn't, that, isn't that what Jesus says, right? As you and I are one, that they may also be one. And so insofar as God's people are united, we're reflecting the character of God. We're reflecting it to the world. Jesus even said, right, that They may know that, that is the world, may know that you sent me and loved them as even you loved me. So I think the things that we're going to hear, not I think, the things that we will hear today from this passage will, Lord willing, encourage and challenge us. And I think it's all that we would be uh, ones who are of one heart and one soul that we're reflecting the character of our God to the world. And this oneness, it extends even to their possessions. Right? Verse 32, look at that. Those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, 
but they had everything in common. And then skipping down to verse 34, a very similar statement says, there was not a needy person among them. For as often as, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And it was laid at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. So you see the church, they're, they're sharing their possessions, right? Verse 32, that, that, that they're doing this thing. And then in verse 34 and 35, they're actually selling things to provide for others. And if the NIV translation's correct or, or gets at the heart of the intent of the Greek here, listen to this. I think this is very interesting. It says, there was not a needy person among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them. So verse 32, they, they haven't sold anything yet. Verse 32 just says that they've shared things that they have to meet the needs of others. Verses 34 and 35, if the NIV is getting at the, the intent of the Greek there, then it seems to be, this is saying, there were especially extraordinary needs from time to time, and people were willing to sell homes and lands to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters. So it seems like Luke, the writer of Acts here, is, is trying to highlight for us, hey, there's a customary, a continuous sharing of possessions to meet needs, and then there's some extraordinary times where people are selling what they have, even very costly things, to supply the need of their brothers and sisters. Which is crazy to think about. James Montgomery Boyce, commenting on these verses, he says, When you realize what God has done for you, talking about the gospel, what he's done, the salvation he's extended to us, he says, your nature is changed. These early Christians realized that God had been generous with them, and so they shared what they had. So the gospel has changed them. They see what God has done for them in Christ, and they can do nothing but be motivated to then share and be generous like their Savior as well. I think another verse that hits well at this change in our nature is from Ephesians. If you think about Ephesians, the, 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 the book at large, chapters 1 through 3, is this beautiful doxology, this, be this beautiful theology. And then chapters 4 through 6 is the working out of that theology. And chapter 4, do you know what it begins with? Now that Paul's covered everything you're supposed to believe about God in 1 through 3, chapter 4 begins with the church is to be unified. And in that chapter, verse 48, when he's talking about things to put off and put on, he says, let the thief no longer steal. That is the, the old nature. Don't let the thief steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Right? So the thief, the old man, he's supposed to put that off and he's supposed to labor, work hard in a way that honors God. That's the new nature, the thing that's being wrought in him. And why? Verse 48, or verse 28 finishes with, so that he, that is this man who now works and does honest work, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I think that's a picture of the gospel, right? The thief, 
The one who was once prone to stealing has now been given a new nature, changed to do honest work. And not just to work for his own good. Not just to work and supply the needs of his own family. But also so that he may supply the need of his brother. So the early church was a generous church. It was a, had a giving spirit that permeated the entire church. And so Christian, if you see a need, you ought not have to wait for somebody in the church to, or a pastor from the church to say, hey, why don't you meet that need? There's a saying in our family, see a need, meet a need. So I tell my sons usually, and my wife tells everybody, including me, hey, if you see a need, don't wait for mom and dad to tell you to take care of that. If you see your little sister in need, your little brother in need, help them out. Think about others. Be generous with your time to serve them. And so I think we can hear this as well. We need to be ones who are knowing each other, spending time with each other, that we can see needs of other people and that we can meet needs. I think we do that well in, in, in some ways, probably many ways. There's probably many things that even go past my eyes that I don't even see. To which I'd say I'm thankful for that. I know we do well as a church serving those who have babies, taking meals, or people who are in the hospital taking meals to their families. And there's probably numerous other ways we could go on talking about the ways that we do this well. But the Lord continues to add to our number. We had over 20 in the new members class this morning. and So as the church grows, as life goes on and life circumstances change, the needs in our church will grow and change. And so we're going to need to be a church that continues to know each other, spending time with each other, that we can see the needs in other people's lives so that they don't have to ask for help. We can just say, I would love to help. But also let me say this, church, if you need help, you should not be so prideful to ask to, to stay silent. At times, we need to ask for help. Just admit that life can be overwhelming at times. It's okay. We need this. So this church had a killer benevolence fund. Right? There was 10,000 people and there wasn't one needy person. It's amazing. And so I want us to be a church that that gives generously, that gives our lives generously to meet needs of others. But what is it that motivates this, right? Is it just a, a do-good? Well, I think we see more of this generous church, what motivates this generous church, because sandwiched between verses 32 and 34 through 35, we get this statement, verse 33. Look at your Bibles and read it with me. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. So the only thing I can think of is that what is it that motivates this gospel generosity? It's the gospel. What is it that motivates this new nature to meet needs even when it costs you something? It's the gospel. 
The Christian faith is not just a set of intellectual beliefs to assent to. It's a a faith. It's, It's a moral life. It's an ethical life, right? It's a belief in the crucified and resurrected Lord. And it has implications for everything that you and I do. So the gospel produced one heart and one soul in the early church. And the gospel is what will produce one heart and one soul in our church. We must look to Jesus. I think the words of A.W. Tozer in The Pursuit of God capture it well. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They're of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meet together each looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes from God to strive for closer fellowship. So Tozer is saying, the way that you make sure that 100 pianos are tuned to the same tune is not by tuning one and then number two gets tuned to one and three to two and so on until you get to 100. It's that you have one tuning fork. And every single piano, all 100 of them are tuned to the one tuning fork. And so we too, Christian, we ought to strive for unity. But it's not by striving for unity that we attain it. We're actually striving for Christ, looking to our author and perfecter of our faith. And by doing so, we will then become unified. We will then have one heart and one soul. And I love how verse 33 ends. And great grace was upon them all. Right? What greater statement could be said about the church than God's grace rested greatly on them? Do you want that? I want that. I want it for me personally. I want it for our church. I want us to be zealous for it, to to keep it, but also to to get more of it. And so may we be a people that cherish the gospel, that give generously, and that God's grace may rest on us greatly. So now let's see the good or the positive example in Barnabas. Look at verse 36. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So just just forewarning, this is by far the shortest point. It's going to be two minutes and then we're going to move on to three, okay? But Joseph, he sells this field that belonged to him. And he takes the money and gives it to the apostles, says, lays it at their feet. And the idea is that he's entrusting them to distribute it. But you notice, we don't hear the name Joseph referring to this man and the rest of Acts. He's referred to as Barnabas. So I wonder if he's been going by Joseph since he's been a believer, maybe since birth, and then after he sells this field after he gives all the proceeds to the apostles, I wonder if then they called him son of encouragement. 
Barnabas. I wonder if it's because maybe he was a huge encouragement to the church to continue sacrificing, to give generously. And everyone who's sitting in this building today, I hope you're encouraged. Because we sit here in this building with a budget that reflects that we're debt-free. And so 20-plus years ago, there was a group of saints, a fraction of the size of the congregation here today, that gave generously to build this building. And it was a $3 million project. And do you know how many years it took for the church to pay that off? Zero years. Do you know how many months it took the church to pay that off? Zero months. The saints gave to this church so that this building could be built debt-free. And there's no telling how many lives have been impacted. Because there were, even among us now, there are some who are still here from that day when the church gave. And so to those who gave at that time, thank you for giving we continue to be encouraged by your sacrificial giving then. You've been a blessing to this church and to the nations because you gave. And so church, there will be a day when we're called on to give generously as Barnabas did then and as our church has given in the past. And I'm, I'm telling you this now because it's in God's word, not because like the elders have some big building plan going on right now. But may God be stirring in us generosity now, that we be overflowing with generosity now, motivated by the gospel now, that whenever the time comes, we would be eager and willing to give. For whatever it is, we don't have any building plans, by the way. So Barnabas is this good example but equally so, there's a bad or a negative example in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Look at verse 1 with me. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there's kind of this clue word, but, right? Uh, often in scripture when you hear the word but, or anytime you read the writing and there's the word but, it's like, well, whatever's come before, now it's about to shift and, and transition to something else. So in this case, it goes from the good to the negative, right? That is Ananias and his wife Sapphira. We're introduced to them being told that they had a field, they sold it, or a piece of property and they sold it. And they even gave some to the apostles. But that's what it was. It was some. It was part. So is that a bad thing? I'm not going to answer that for you right now. Let's keep reading, okay? Uh, and actually, before we read this, sorry. Ananias and Sapphira, they're, they're married. They know everything that's kind of going on. But they're dealt with in two different scenes by the apostle Peter. But we're going to look at them together. Okay, so we're going to read verses 3, um, and then we'll start in verse 3, and then we'll also jump to verse 7 in just a second. So keep looking at your Bible with me. Verse 3. 
Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So one really quick point that's not the major point from this section of the passage. But in verse 3, we see that Ananias' lies to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, we see Peter also saying, you've lied to God. So just really quick side note, the Holy Spirit and God, the Holy Spirit is God, right? So if you get questions this week, I actually had somebody call me last week um, trying to refute the Trinity, um, saying it's not true. But the Holy Spirit is God. All right, moving on. Verse 7, let's look at Peter's response to Sapphira. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. So this husband and wife, they've done something together. They've sold a piece of property. They have brought the proceeds or part of the proceeds and laid them at the apostles' feet. To which Peter says, well, hey, Ananias, you have tried to deceive people. You've lied. You have said you've sold this piece of property. You've brought the proceeds. And you even see Peter's words there, right? He says, while it remained unsold, was it not your own? And even when you sold it, was it not your own? Yes. Was it not at your disposal? Yes. But we see from the conversation with Peter and Sapphira that they were actually trying to make it be known to people that they gave everything. So from this conversation between Peter and, and Ananias and Sapphira, it doesn't seem wrong that they, that they gave and only part of it. It seems that it's wrong that they, they gave and lied about it. They tried to deceive. They tried to appear better than they actually were, perhaps trying to take credit for godliness that wasn't their own because they, they knew they were supposed to be generous. And so they, they're hypocrites. They try to pass for something that they're not, ones who gave everything when they gave part. So I wonder, do we have similar struggles? Do we want others to think better of us than we truly are? Do we tell little white lies thinking it won't harm anyone, right? I mean, think about their little white lie. It's, we're actually giving to the church. We sold some property and we gave part of it. That doesn't seem to be bad on the surface of it. But it's their lying. They're trying to appear better than they truly were giving, more generous than they were. So which even just makes me, or reminds me that Sometimes the greatest opposition to the church isn't necessarily persecution from the outside. Sometimes the greatest threat to the church can be from within. It could be false teachers and false doctrine. 
Or in other cases, it could be other people turning, keeping their eyes on themselves, being selfish, having a me-first attitude like it sounds like Ananias and Sapphira were more concerned with their own appearance than being truly generous. And then in verse 5, it says, When Ananias, Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Then in verse 10, skip down. Immediately she, that is Sapphira, fell down at his feet, Peter's feet, and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found, their, found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So husband and wife die in the same day. Fell down immediately right there. And great fear comes upon everybody who hears it. To which if we take this seriously, at least I think great fear should come upon us to some degree, right? It seems rather severe that they've lied and now they've died. But think about it. We don't deserve anything other than death anyways. And if we think about sin rightly, how is lying to a, a fellow believer worthy of death, right? Well, it's because we're actually sinning against God. So church, our sin is serious. Every sin is serious. Just consider David's uh, confession in Psalm 51, verse 3. He says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. If you know the context of this, he's confessing sin after having slept with another man's wife and after having killed that man. All to cover up, with, cover up his own sin. And yet he says to God, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Does that mean that he didn't actually sin when he committed adultery and murder? Or at least, sorry, does that mean he didn't sin against those people when he did those things? No, it doesn't. But as he approaches God in prayer, he sees the grievousness, the heinousness of his own sin and says, I've sinned against you, God. And then how about Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 12, referring to uh, people, uh, their dietary um, restrictions. He says, thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So there is also a sense in which when we sin against a brother and sister, we're sinning against Christ. So we can't take lightly any sin. Because all sin is against our great holy God. Again, listen to these words from John Piper. He says, God did not ordain the cross of Christ or create the lake of fire in order to communicate the insignificance of belittling his glory. The death of the Son of God and the damnation of unrepentant human beings are the loudest shouts under heaven that God is infinitely holy and sin is infinitely offensive and wrath is infinitely just. 
And his grace is infinitely precious. So when we sin, we are sinning against the infinitely holy God. It's infinitely offensive because he is perfect. And yet his grace is infinitely precious. Something that we should delight in, cherish. And so when we are tempted, we should see the preciousness of God's grace and hate sin all the more. So this passage serves as a warning to everyone. It serves, I think, as a warning to unbelievers that God takes sin seriously and that he will bring judgment on all who remain in sin. And right now I'm talking not specifically there that, that if you die um, in the last thing you do is commit sin, that you will then be punished in hell. But I mean, all those who fail to repent of sin and bow a knee to King Jesus will suffer hell. But it's also a warning to us believers that God's the God who sent Christ to pay your punishment. And so to keep on sinning, it's an offense to the infinitely holy God. So we maybe hate our sin, whatever that sin is. Specifically, if there's a heart in us that is not generous to those in need, may God work in us to help us see that it's truly his and not ours to steward, whether it's possessions or money. And even this sin of Ananias and Sapphira, although it is a sin against God, I think it's also a sin against God's people as they lie to the apostles, misrepresenting what they're bringing forth. And so even just think about this in the church, right? Lying is a breach of trust. And when the foundation of trust that, that, that helps us be unified, when it is eroded, our unity crumbles. Trust must be built up, and lying goes directly against that. You know this very well if you're a parent. When your children lie to you, it makes you less inclined to believe them the next time. The more they tell the truth, the more your heart is inclined to believe them. And so the same thing is true within us in this body. If we are prone to exaggerating, lying just a little bit that we might be thought well of, it will start to break down trust, break down the unity in this church. And so may we be a church that loves truth, not just God's word, the truth, but loves truth that comes out of our mouths, that it would build up trust with one another, that our unity would be promoted instead of torn down. Even just looking at the what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira here, and specifically with their gift that they bring. I want to encourage slash challenge us now as a church in our giving. 
right? As members, we covenant together to give cheerfully and generously to the support of the church, to relief of the poor, and to the spread of the gospel among the nations. That's in our covenant. If you're a member here, and right now I'm just talking to our members, if you're a member here, you have said yes to this when you became a member, and you say yes to this every time we bring in new members because we read and affirm the covenant when we bring in new members. And so I I just want to offer a word of thanksgiving and challenge because there are many in this church that give generously. But yet it's also uh, been made aware to the elders that the majority of the giving units in this church don't give what might be called, or, or it doesn't appear that they give what might be called a tithe or an offering. So I just want to clarify some terms here. What do I mean by giving unit? So uh, we'll just use the Millers, for example. Uh, I've got me, my wife, and five kiddos. So there's seven of us. That's one giving unit, not seven people. And so therefore, if I give, only one out of seven give. So one giving unit could be a family. It could be a single adult. It could be um, a couple. But the elders are aware that not uh, the majority of the people are giving units in this church it appears like they don't give a tithe. And so I want that to be a challenge. I want that to sit on us. That yes, when you get the midweek and you see the budget week after week, um, we're in surplus, praise be to God. I'm thankful for that. That also could be attributed to the saints that gave 20 years ago to make this place debt-free. But we're not called to give only if our church needs. We say in our covenant together, we cheerfully and generously give to the support of the church, relief of the poor, and to the spread of the gospel among the nations. And so I want to challenge you. I also want to say thank you to those who give generously to this church. Thank you. But yet, if you're sitting here even now thinking, well, I've not yet. I've thought about it. I want to. I want to challenge you. Think about the grace of God that is precious, immeasurable. The great Savior that left the throne of heaven. Right? He gave up his abode in heaven. He gave up his seat at the right hand of the Father. He gave up heavenly kingship to become a servant. Think Philippians chapter 2 right now. He took on human flesh. Why? Not so that when the people of, uh, of the earth see him when he came in human form, that he would be praised and loved by the entire world. That should have been what happened, but it didn't. Instead, everyone turned their back on him, crucified him. He gave his life for us. God raised him from the dead. So God the Father is generous in sending the Son. The Son is abundantly generous in leaving heaven, coming to earth, dying for us. And the Spirit is generous in enlivening us, regenerating us, giving us new life in Christ. And so may the gospel be what motivates us to give generously, not a guilt trip on a Sunday morning. That after you get your paycheck on whatever day you get paid, 
that you would say the first part of this paycheck is going to be generous, not whatever's left over. If there's any left over, that's what I give. May we be a generous people. May Hamilton be known as being generous. Let me ask God's help for that now. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word that reminds us of the generosity of you, our great God, sending Jesus, our Savior, and for him, after he ascended to your right hand, who uh, he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to work in us, and perhaps even generosity could be seen as one of the fruits of the Spirit, an evidence of God working, you working in us would be us being a generous people. I believe the book of Acts has been, at least for me, it's been a great encouragement slash rebuke and challenge. Pray that it would be for our church as well that the Spirit would work in us to produce mouths that declare Christ and hands that eagerly give to Christ, hearts that cherish Christ. We want to delight in him today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.